writers, agents, and publishers, for the first time since the Gutenberg Press, find themselves lost in a maze of mystery as technology alters the shape of the publishing industry. Searching for Answers is a group of writers throwing pop culture, writing, and publishing into a crucible of clarity, passion, and humor. This group is the Right Pack. Welcome back to Right Pack Radio. With me today, this is David Allen Lucas, your host, author of science fiction, horror, mystery, and poetry. And with me today is... Jennifer Stolzer. I am a fantasy author and an illustrator. Fedora Amos. I write Victorian whodunits. I have a book out now, which is Jack the River in St. Louis, which is a lot of fun. And I hope that you'll come out and see us at the next St. Louis Writers Guild workshop, which is going to be on August 2nd. It's about mystery, triple the mystery, with two other mystery writers and myself, and we will be giving you some great hints. And I'm Melanie Polanyi. I'm not doing anything so interesting in regards to writing, but uh, I write science fiction, fantasy, and uh, nonfiction. And today we are going to be going... I just screwed it up. (laughs) Yeah, never mind. Anyway, audience, what I was going to try to do was the theme song to um, Law & Order because we are going to talk about writing from the headlines. In television, this seems to be something that's easier to do as shows like Law & Order, which was probably one of the greatest in regards to being able to do that, made simple. Um, other shows such as Spooks, otherwise known as MI5 in America, um, did as well, which was a spy series set in England that also focused on stories from the headlines. And Law and Order, not Law and Order, sorry, you were just talking about that. West Wing had an episode two weeks, no, was it six weeks? It was within two, it was less than two months after 9-11. They had an episode that was in direct response to 9-11 happening. So that's how fast they can do turnaround. And I think, the, speaking of 9-11, I think a lot of comic books did a quick turnaround reaction to um, 9-11 as well, but that I'm not 100% positive of. Jennifer, you might know that one better than I do. Well, the comic books that responded uh-huh. to 9-11, well, it's easier for comic books to release a special issue. It's a lot easier for things like comic books and TV shows to respond to news articles as opposed to novels responding mm-hmm. because novels have a two-year production time most of the time. Or traditionally published novels. Or traditionally published. I'm sure if there's a big, you know, uh, when the tsunami struck Japan, there was a lot of tsunami relief-related things published and books that involved tsunamis and national, you know, natural disasters and things like that published by private people through self-publishing means, you can get those out right away, but the well, trends uh, the trends tend to start two years before they appear. Right, and I was going to say, that's exactly where I want to go, is can a, can, is it possible for writers to write from the headlines? Of course, the answer is going to be partially, depends on what media you're writing. But also, too, even like using, to borrow your term, the tsunami ones, even, mm-hmm. the, even the self-publisher ones, it still takes time. At least if you're putting out a decent book, it's still going to take some time. That's the key. To make sure it's of high quality, you need to go through all the steps of making it high quality, and there's a lot of what I would call shovelware out there. People making it as fast as possible and dumping it onto shelves and people buying it because they think the topic is, you know, it's, oh, I just read about that on the news, but they didn't 
the author didn't take enough time to make sure it now, was well crafted. There's two exceptions to that. I'm going to do the easy exception first. One, it not easy, not easy to do. Yeah. There are some people that are very fast at writing that write close to finished prose. I am not one of them, and Mm -hmm. I know very few people that are. Like, 99% of authors aren't this. Yes. But they do exist. Um, There was, oh, the... The, the plot doctor, uh, he put out the, the Pulp Fiction guy, uh, I can't think of his name, he wrote up the, the Master Book of All Plots, uh, that's a non-fiction book, he, like a manual he wrote, I can't think of his name, okay. but anyway, he, he was one of the Pulp Fiction writers in the 50s, I think, okay. or maybe even earlier than that, but he put out 50 books a year, and they were actually, okay, all the plots, yeah, they were formulaic. But it was reasonably well written. There weren't they weren't super full of typos and all that. But I think a reasonable I think a non superhuman could probably do a reasonably good book in three months, self published, if you have the writing style that doesn't need a ton of revision. But at that point, is a topic still relevant if it's coming out of the headlines? It depends on the what the headline thing. is. For yeah. instance, if it was 9-11, a terrorism-like thing, definitely still related. Agreed. Yeah. Those, <laughs> that, that, in fact, is starting to finally, after all these years, die out in the fiction world to a degree. To yeah, a degree, but, but still. The second thing I was... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Timing is a wonderful thing, but it's purely a crapshoot in the writing world, I think. Mm-hmm. I have a friend... I'll give her name, even it's Cheryl Hinkey, who wrote a book called Absolute Power. And it was a thriller which forecasted 9-11. But it came out before Uh 9-11. And it found no audience. And she just barely got an editor, even though she had already published about 50 books Mm. of a different type. And her book really never did find its audience because it came out at the wrong time. Mm Mm-hmm. And however you manage to find the right time, I think it is just pure luck. Well, that brings me to the second way to follow the headlines. There's a book called My Sister's Keeper, and that's a book that very much anticipated the headlines. My Sister's Keeper is a book about, and I don't remember who wrote it, but it's about a a set of sisters, and the younger sister was born to be a bone marrow donor for the older sister. And now I don't didn't read the book, but I think when they were teenagers or young adult, then the younger sister was supposed the older sister then needed a kidney transplant. Mm. So then the moral quandary is, you know, is this is it just this younger sister's responsibility to do this? Yeah. But the point is now that this book came out, save your siblings, which are a real thing. Uh-huh. The oldest saver siblings are well, okay. There were a couple that were just plain old luck. But the designer baby, as in using in vitro fertilization to make sure the, the, ba- the, new, the new baby would be genetically compatible, those kids at the time my sister's keeper came out were young teenagers. Mm-hmm. So it hadn't happened yet. So it was speculative fiction. You know, this will happen in the future. It hasn't happened yet. And now the cases are being talked about, and people's like, wait a minute, didn't this already happen? It's like, no, that book was fiction. Well, I think we're ignoring also a third type of writing from the mm-hmm. uh, headlines, and that is the, the persistently relevant topic, the books that are still being written about cyberbullying and, uh, you know, 
drunk driving and things like that. Those are in response to things that the news likes to report on, but they're long enough trends that you're pretty safe to, to publish a cyberbullying book and find a cyberbullying audience. Not That sounds really bad. So an audience that would be interested in reading a book about cyberbullying. Mm-hmm. Even if you started writing one right now, I guarantee you would probably find some foothold. At least for another, I don't know, five years or so? Until, like, legislation actually happens. Well, I think right there, you kind of hit on two aspects to writing from the headlines. One, I, I'm going to take and throw into the mystery thriller realm, mm. which is the headlines that always reappear. And that is dealing with murder and dealing with crime and humanity hasn't changed in 5,000 years. It's not going to change anytime soon. No. Despite whatever legislation comes out. I, I, sad to say, but fact is fact. The human race has always been made of humans. Right. <laughs> and a lot of thrillers, you know, you can take away the serial killers, you can take away the common crime. What you're talking about in the mystery and thriller is the deep down psychological issues behind what's causing the crime to occur. Mm-hmm. Or the motivations. And Fedora, I keep looking up at you to let, let's say, go ahead, you can jump in and, and contradict <laughs> me. The other one is science fiction. Mm-hmm. And not so much with soft science fiction as hard science fiction, in my opinion, but you have what I'm going to call the futurists. Um, some of these, in fact, I'm going to mention two have passed away, which is Isaac Abzanoff and Arthur C. Clarke. They were looking. They were looking at the headlines. They were looking at the way they saw the world today, and saying, "Okay, how can this technology or science or whatever be in the future?" And we slowly see the headlines catching up to that. Star Trek, good example. Mm-hmm. But just to throw two two authors, I'm going to use Arthur C. Clarke. All your um, geosynchronous. Um, all your GPS, all that technology, it's um, thanks to Clark and his predictions. In fact, another term for a geosynchronous orbit is called a Clark orbit. Hmm. Um, also, too, Ben Bova, who is still alive, left I heard. <laughs> Love his writing. Um, ben Bova predicted peacekeeper forces. Hmm. And what do we have? Go around the world. Yeah. So you've got those two aspects. You've got a futuristic version of the of a headlines which can be written timelessly, and you've got the headlines that are always going to show up that are also timeless. Well, there's a difference between predicting what's going to happen in the future, which is very science fiction. Some would say that's even a part of the definition of science fiction, and writing from a headline, which would be seeing what you're seeing in the present day, someone who is seeing... Let's take uh, Tolkien, for example. He's looking at a war-torn England, and then he writes a fantasy story about a pastoral society that's then affected by a big monster that comes from outside. And that was him writing from his headline, writing from the life that he was living in the present day, but it was affecting his work. I think that also counts as writing from a headline, as opposed to... um, if there hadn't been a war going on and he was looking to the future and saying, well, what would happen if England was involved in a big war and he wrote a fantasy story exploring that? That's more of like a pure science fiction and not so much writing from a headline. But, uh, Jan, I was just thinking, there's another category that isn't quite science fiction. It's sort of like anticipating the current events 
which is easiest to do with technology. Yes, it's but, more of an extrapolation. That you see but it's what a short term. It's like it's what you think will be happening by the time you get published. Mm-hmm. That would be my sister's keeper would fall under yeah. that. That's not science think, fiction, even though it hasn't happened yet. Well, thematically, it mm-hmm. seems to me that every writer will have a, some sort of theme and some good reason for writing what he or she writes. Mm-hmm. It might be that I like the world around me and I extrapolate this in the future to come from all the good things I see. Mm-hmm. Or I hate the world around mm-hmm. me and I want it to be this way. And so they write a utopian version of mm-hmm. it. So they might be trying to do either one of those things, but I think it has... Uh, most importantly to the theme that they're trying to get across. You, you left off the dystopian writer. <laughs> Which <laughs> no, actually writes the, cur- so. <laughs> writes the futuristic critique of uh, yeah. what they're saying. Yeah. Uh, I think the topic that we're looking to explore here at this table today is more of an immediate like mm-hmm. headline exactly. implies an immediate thing that has just happened that we're writing. Well, from, I was thinking so. the other thing is uh, headlines would be writing either nonfiction or fictionalized truth. For instance, if someone is arrested for a murder, mm-hmm. guess what? How long does it take in general for a murderer to go to trial? It's a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So you actually have time to get out a book about that murder. Mm-hmm. It'll probably if you're lucky and he doesn't plead out, uh-huh. we'll come out about the time the trial starts. And depending also on um, how celebrity oriented the murder is and all that because mm-hmm. that yeah that seems to speed up the criminal justice system a bit because in all honesty rightly or wrongly actually my opinion wrongly but rightly or wrongly they are put under political they're put under popular and political pressure to get it out the door mm-hmm. but especially if everyone's pushing though you can get out the book about mm-hmm. whatever before the trial starts yeah well the trial itself is suffering from that because if the public has interest, then mm-hmm. the lawyers want to use that public interest in their case. Yep. So, That's called trial by public. There you go. Or trial by mob. It's Crimes are, are very inspiring, I think, because yeah. people do crazy things that you can't believe are real, and it starts your imagination going. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of... Well, a lot of the reason why all these police procedurals are Mm -hmm. so popular on television and in movies right now is because the news is so prevalent, and in the news they report on these crazy things that happen, and then, you know, the writers for CSI say, ooh, well, we can spin that in this direction, and then they can... It's a constant stream of inspiration coming at you from all all different kinds of angles. I think that's a very good point. I'm looking at today's paper, in fact. Uh And one of the articles on the very front page says, Buy on the wild side. For a right price, a lion, a tiger, or a bear can be yours. (laughs) And it's some brothers in Macon, Missouri, who hold a famous live animal auction every year. But, of course, the buyers have to beware. That, I think, could make a very good story. Yeah, are you sure you, you didn't read that off the back of a novel? <laughs> you could make a story out of that, I am pretty sure, uh-huh. about some idiotic person buying one of these wild animals and either having comic events with it or very serious repercussions uh-huh. from that stupid act. Uh-huh. And, and that's the point. It doesn't the inspiration take... is yeah. what yeah. I'm yeah. talking about. And if anybody just got a slight bit of a bulb light up with that idea for a story... We always are recording in the future, so I mean, as we're at least two weeks 
ahead of where we're actually publishing. So today is Sunday, July 13th, 2013. That is a Sunday post-dispatch in St. Louis. In case you want to look up the story, it's um, their website is stltoday.com. And uh, just in case you actually are interested, did you know it's illegal to keep like a squirrel <laughs> for a pet in Missouri, but you can keep a tiger? Well, well you know, when they wrote the law, they didn't think people were going to get a hold of tigers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Another aspect, too, of writing from the headlines comes writing from research. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking for myself, and I know I'm really not, I'm speaking more for the group, yeah. we're always reading magazines, news articles, and so forth that are particular to our topics. In my case, I read a lot of crime journals, uh, police, police procedural magazines. I also read, since I write science fiction on top of that, a lot of science and science news magazines. So out of those topics will come a story or come an issue, and I will spin it and go, okay, what if? For example, um, kind of more common today in, in fiction is the idea of having multiple serial killers in a thriller. Actually, there was, oh, 1989, 90, somewhere in there, and I can't think of the name of a magazine anymore because it's that far back, <laughs> but there was a paper written about how some serial killers run in packs, like a wolf pack. Oh. And they actually, you've got a, lack of a, I'm, this is my term, this is not the paper's term that <laughs> was published, you have kind of like an alpha wolf who's controlling the beta wolves and teaching them how to do whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's a story idea too, right off the bat. And will that change? Will that concept change over time? No, that's, that's kind of still from the headlines, but it's not immediate. But uh, I think we've determined that it's fairly easy to write from headlines. It's hard to stay relevant in certain places. Mm-hmm. What are some other ways that it's difficult to write from a headline? Things that you think, uh, when you have you ever seen someone trying to sample current events and doing it poorly? Okay. Or doing it off color, perhaps? Not off color, but here's a good example. It wasn't a book. At least I don't think it was a book. <laughs> it was a movie. It was one of the first movies that occurred about 9 11. Mm-hmm. It was about the flight that didn't crash into a building that crashed into the field. Yeah. Uh-huh. When yeah, that. Right. Yeah, I forget the name of the movie, but that trailer showed in front... When that trailer came out in front of some other movies, people actually left the theater just seeing the trailer and started yelling out too soon. Yeah. They actually re- pulled that trailer uh-huh. because it was upsetting people. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> that was a case of, you know, maybe in... I can see that movie being played in high school in another ten years. Yeah. But it was too soon. <laughs> Too soon is a really important things thing about to the consider. Tsun- We're just now seeing things about the tsunami in um, Indonesia. Mm-hmm. So. I was going to say, in movies, books, etc., not so much I can think of somebody who's done it, but I can tell you where you can get the idea that they published it way too soon, hmm. is if after the event is over with, and after the last of the information is finally out that's made public, uh-huh. You go through and you read that book, and you're like, um, yeah, wait a minute, what happened here? No, yeah. that's, not, that's not accurate. Uh-huh. That's not correct. And you can tell they, they rushed it out. And I'm going to be honest, not just self-publishers, but publishers do try to get stuff out the door quickly because it's hot, it's going to attract readers or viewers or whatever, 
and they run the risk of being inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Well, I would take a completely different tack with the whole thing. I write historicals, as you know, Uh and I read newspapers from 1898, and I love them. I do. But it's not the headlines very much that grab me. It is the rest of the information in the newspapers. I spend hours just over the advertisements finding out that winter boots you could buy for a buck thirty seven <laughs> at Sticks. Yeah. Right here in St. Louis when Sticks was a store and uh-huh. when you could buy boots for a buck thirty seven. So I find that some of the small little bits of society page Little bits, perhaps, of the front page, Mm -hmm. but little bits here and there are what give credibility and color and detail to the stories that I try to write because I'm trying to place people more than a century ago, and it's very difficult even for me to understand what people were like, and I'm immersed in that, Uh totally immersed in it. So I know that that is what I have to have in order to get people to come along with me into that era and understand it even a little bit. That sounds like very much the same issues that would be narrative biography. Not autobiography, but like of a biography of Roosevelt, whatever, that you're putting into a story format versus the dry, you write it for a term paper biographies. <laughs> you right. want people to be feeling like they're there. Right, right. Dry, writing it as a textbook for a school. Yeah. Yes, I'm sorry, I had to throw that out there. So, what else do you find difficult in writing from the headlines? Or do you find it difficult at all? In the case of Fedora, the headlines have been come and gone (laughs) for for well over 100 years. But I'll bet you, I'm willing to bet, well, I'm willing to bet a good box of donuts anyway, (laughs) that a lot of those headlines look like they could have been out of today. Well, yes and no. I'll tell you a little story, shall I? Please. <laughs> it's about a farmer named Knox who lived uh, west of St. Louis City at about Shetler Road. What's about Shetler Road now? I mm-hmm. think I've told you this story before. Could be. <clears throat> I haven't heard it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, in those days, they, there was no real um, investigative police work. And they pretty much sloughed everything off if they at all possibly could as suicide oh. or some something akin to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, at any rate, yeah. this <laughs> this farmer's uh, family was entirely found by his brother, oddly enough, and he had seven children, every single one of them killed by a hammer to the head, and then he killed himself with three blows to that. His head with a hammer, also. I'd like and to see I just find that. that a little bit strange. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think there's a homicide there that got covered yeah, up. That sounds a little uh, homicidal. Just to well, I will just say that I'm not making this isn't necessarily lo- it, this isn't local, <laughs> but I've heard of cases of suicide where the only evidence that the person was depressed would be the prime suspect if it was a murder. And the shot was, you know, not really likely to be angled right to be shooting yourself. But they still called it a suicide. Well. So, you know. Yeah. Policemen are also human beings sometimes. Usually they are. Yeah. yeah. And they face a lot of things. But that's a whole other topic. Um, so, 
Oh. I'm done looking at everybody here. Oh, well, I was, uh, just, like, uh, what was the topic again? Uh, I got involved that, in the story with the hammers. Yes. But, okay, <laughs> uh, Brian from the... I'm just from the... Oh. That's right, members. Go ahead. <laughs> I was thinking from writing, uh, there's a couple of ways. I was thinking another way to write the headlines is sort of the anticipation. So if you have a universal story, for instance, you said that your friend wrote a story that didn't sell well because it was the wrong time. Yes. Well, you write a novel, you get it ready to publish, but it's just not time for it to publish. And then something happens, like all of a sudden there's a bunch of public interest in, let's say, you have a study, a story about a family dealing with the flooding of the Mississippi River. And it's a fictional story. But, okay, that's a little, that's more timeless. But let's just say you hold on to it, and it's like, then there's a year with a lot of flooding. So then you, you know, get it out because it's all ready to get out. When do you start feeling like a vulture? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. Because I can give a little bit of an anecdote from my younger days. Uh, I was in middle school, we were having a debate. You know, we were learning to debate in language arts or whatever. And our debate topic was for and against carrying backpacks in the hallway. And while I was putting together my anti-backpack uh, manifesto, which I didn't believe in because I wanted to carry my books <laughs> in my backpack, um, but I was, I was on that side. I was arguing mm-hmm. my point. There was a school shooting. And I remember that they reported on the school shooting, and I went, Oh, good! <laughs> because I could use that in my debate. And then I realized that I was celebrating a school shooting. And then I felt bad. And I still kind of feel bad. But that's... It, it turns you into a little bit of an ambulance yeah. chaser. A barracuda. <laughs> I also say sometimes I do... There are times I feel very ghoulish when I look at um, police police or investigative magazines and so forth. And like, oh... That is a really good idea. Oh, yeah. yeah then yeah, you yeah. sit back and you're like, really? Oh, there uh, were five victims, right? Uh, I was going to say also, too, sometimes what's the headline is can be old, but made fresh and new and interesting to the audience. Again, I'm going to throw out a classic movie that came off of a book, that came off of a real murder that occurred that... The book was repressed by desire of the movie director, and that was Psycho. Now, the movie itself, the characters are not real, that was based on a book by by the same name of Psycho. Mm -hmm. But the books were repressed, or kept, basically, they were on the shelves, and Alfred Hitchcock arranged to buy every single one of them to make sure they didn't go in the public's hands so he could make the movie. Oh. But by doing that, he refreshed the interest in the headline and interest in the story, and then out came Cycle. And much to the surprise of the movie industry and the and the studio, it actually did quite well. Huh. Um, I just thought of a movie, and I'm trying to find it, but it actually got somebody out of prison. Um, <laughs> no, but this was... Oh, Let's see. What in the was meantime, there's Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, mm-hmm. yeah. which and which he actually got to the guys while they were still alive and was able to uh, interview them. Huh. But still, his book is is partly fiction, as he always said. Well, I'm sure he had to do that to cover himself up. <laughs> well, and I think this is something that a lot of true crime writers run into is you've got the heat of the interest, you've got access to the killers. Assuming this is, we're talking about murder, 
Um, you got access to the killers for a certain amount of time while they go through the appeals and so forth. And you have to sit across from them and wonder how much of a truth are you getting? Because, of course, if it's in the appeals, they really don't want to tell you the truth. Or they, are, or they are telling you the truth, but you don't want to believe them because it's a taint of, yeah, you don't want to put yourself, you don't want to um, incriminate, yourself. incriminate yourself. Thank you. So that's an aspect of which they deal with, but yet, once again, you only have a short window because public interest is only going to be involved in it for a short amount of time. And Which if, is why I would say, yeah. don't worry about it. <laughs> you, know, you have to write the best book that you can. Amen. And if you hit the time right, that's grand. If you miss, maybe you can hold it a while, but then, you know, you can't tell about how long the production will take anyway. So there are so many variables that you have absolutely no control over that I say, just write that great book. Mm-hmm. And also, too, on top of that, don't forget, you've got the bill collectors going, hey, uh, where's our money from you, if you're, especially if you're trying to make a living on selling the book? And you get that pressure. I mean, how can you... Can you sit back and hold on to a book for years, possibly, till the timing is right? Probably not. Not, not unless you are. And there have been exceptions. I think Agatha Christie and P.D. James have been able to do that and a few others, but that's rare. And they pretty much have already made it into, into their niche by then. Oh, did you find it? <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. Um, <laughs> I just found out something that uh, about World Cup soccer accidentally. <laughs> Which, by the way, people, this is being fil- being recorded while World Cup is happening, and some of the soccer fans are checking while we're recording. Actually, I'm that's not. not I'm, I'm not, dedicated to this. I <laughs> am trying to look up the name of the movie I was trying to think of, and I'll tell you the movie was. Oh, when did I hear about this movie? Um, this movie was about, uh, I heard an interview about it. Um, this man, he was supposed to be the nicest guy in the world, and he murdered his mother, and he was sentenced to life in prison for it. By the way, he did actually do it. He confessed. But after the movie came out, um, they, uh, let's just say the movie showed him in what the director truly believed was, you know, basically showed the other side of the story, explained why he did it, showed that he wasn't a psychopath, that he was actually a victim of, well, childhood abuse and also emotional abuse by his mother, and he snapped one day. And he got paroled after 17 years in prison. And, I mean, he wasn't exonerated or anything. He was, and, yeah. and he actually... He still murdered his mother. <laughs> he yeah. was... He's now currently living in the direct, uh, director's garage apartment. Oh, well, yeah. that was yeah. nice. Yeah, so I'm trying to find the name of... Uh... One of the things about chasing headlines and reading the headlines, also, too, is you can also notate when the headline gets the story wrong. Hmm. Yeah. And sometimes that's years later, and with modern-day technology, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the world of true crime slash mystery, where at new forms of being able to review evidence new um, tests and so forth are able to come out and show that somebody who was convicted of a crime turned out really didn't do it. Now, that's not very common, but still it happens. Mm -hmm. And psychologically speaking, sometimes that's been a result of false witness testimony, not that the witness witness themselves are trying to falsely accuse, it's just the way the memory works. Because they were weighing witnesses separately. What is 
what are one some of the headlines that have inspired you in, in your writing as you've gone? Okay. Well, <laughs> I went to the headlines once, and I wanted to ask Brad about this because I thought there was supposed to be an anthology on the 250th year of St. Louis that was coming out this year. What happened to that day? That's a good you know? question. I know Brad is, Brad's gotten stories on it, stories that have been collected. And one for me, in and, fact. And yeah. one for me, too. And by the way, yes, I'm throwing Brad... Brad R. Cook underneath the bus in this conversation because he's at home watching Germany versus Argentina on the World Cup. So, Brad, you should have been here. I'm sure he's formatting the ebook as we speak. Yeah. But, no, in all honesty, I know he's, he's been swamped. But he has a good question. There's, um, I'm not sure where we're standing with that yet. Well, I'll tell you a little about my story. It's called Adamantia Schnettgecki. And the world's largest outdoor city-sponsored event. Okay? Okay. It's about a stage mother during the 1914 big outdoor pageant that St. Louis had 10 years after the St. Louis World's Fair to Hmm. celebrate the World's Fair. And it was absolutely huge. I mean, they had... 30,000 people just on the stage or that took part in the pageant and the entire Art Hill they said that uh, three quarters of a million people came to watch it it was uh, huge, it was a huge thing at any rate so I can go to headlines and look for them so I had to research of course that uh, pageant that they had in order to write the story but I found some really great stuff a lot of good coverage of it and was able to write a story, which I hope Brad sometimes gets this anthology out of. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be out later this oh, year. Oh, good. Yeah. You're going to do the cover for it, of course. Oh, I, we actually took photo uh, submissions for the cover, so I may not be doing the cover. Ooh. Although, if he asks me, I'm happy to help. Uh, what oh. uh, headlines? How headlines help my writing? I'm a fantasy author, so I don't have... the. I, I don't tend to write in worlds that are this world, so I'm not quite as hip to the the headline applications as y'all are, uh, but I'm writing a ghost story right now, and the paranormal investigation culture is constantly changing, and every time I turn on the sci-fi channel, there's another ghost special, ghost hunters, ghost adventures, ghost whatever, and they're always using these cool gadgets and things, and that inspires me then to maybe find a way to integrate that into my ghost story, or at least to research the way they think it's supposed to be working and see if it's a valid piece of paranormal investigative technology or if it's somebody off-screen waving an electromagnet around, and because there's always room for trickery as well in that kind of a, a field. So that's kind of the best way for me to apply it to mine, other than, you know, perhaps looking at comparative fiction and things like that. Or I have one book that's about illnesses and people dying of disfiguring illnesses. So you research similar illnesses that happen to real people. And it's, yeah, you, you, that's more in the research realm, though, not so much from headlines. Yeah, I do a lot of that. The nonfiction writing I write isn't memoirs or biographies. It's scientific papers, which means I'm reading a lot of those. So, uh-huh. yeah, that can come through into fiction writing. I never did find the movie I was thinking about, but I found another book at the same time that actually is writing from the headlines. I believe the book is called Blood Will Out. 
and it's about the man that masqueraded as a Rockefeller for de uh, oh, decades yeah. and killed somebody and was, I mean, he was just a, he was a sociopath, well, psychopath and, uh, or at least a compulsive liar <laughs> and, uh, the man had issues. Uh, yeah. yeah, he did. <laughs> and he, uh, oh, he convinced a whole lot of people. He was a Rockefeller. And this, it doesn't really uh, spoil the story to say that he wasn't. But one of his, I'll say, one of his victims that wasn't really hurt all that much, that was just shocked and felt very uneasy about the fact, you know, he wasn't directly conned by this man. Uh -huh. He just discovered he was in this man's web mm -hmm. and he was a newspaper reporter so he yeah. wrote a book about it and yeah. that's an interesting term that you just used his his web mm -hmm. his web of deceit and murder yeah good term <laughs> is there anything is there any way that you hold on to any um articles or headlines that when you read them it's like that i i feel the muse starting to be a little restless in the back of my mind but I'm working on something else right now, so let me hold on to this and come back to it. And if so, what are your methods of holding on to them? Oh, well, I absolutely have huge files, lots and lots of files of clippings, as you know. Well, I love you're, I, when you say <laughs> files, you actually mean a I paper mean, file paper with file. a file cabinet. Well, I uh -huh. No, I have also a computer files, but I yeah. have all kinds of files. Mm -hmm. I have a room full of files. Now, see, I, I do computer files in folders because I'll never find them again if I put them in a, a paper format. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, these lovely little search engines on your yeah. own computer are pretty good. Amen. Yes, amen to that. <laughs> Saved me more than once. And in a lot with Fedora's researching, though, believe it or not, people that, for a lot of us older ones, that's, I don't believe I just included myself <laughs> in that, but I did. It's too late now. I know, and a lot of older people, not really that old, but there was a time before computers existed, so no, everything you, was in paper. No, uh, you were not around before computers existed. You were around before personal computers were common. Actually, I think there's nobody at this table that was around before personal before computers existed. Yeah. Because computers were were used in World War II. Yeah. yeah. I know, because my uncle worked on them mm -hmm. about that time period. So, but what I do... Oh, Jen, what do you do with yours first? What do I do? Yeah, then yeah. I'll, I'll talk about mine, if I'd anything. Uh, I write mostly out of my imagination, so usually it's whatever I've retained. I don't have any files okay. <laughs> so much. Uh, I'm not a very good example to put forward on the research and development department. <laughs> you know, I actually wrote... I just make it up out of thin air. <laughs> I wrote a fictional research paper that included some real references <laughs> for my uh, background story, for the backstory of one of my characters. Because well, I, I was creating a fictional disease. You know, I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not opposed to researching things into incorporating real life things into fantasy worlds. I mean, mm -hmm. for heaven's sake, that's how we get some of our best fantasy stories. Amen. Tolkien, I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not, I don't have a Threadcaster folder on my laptop that's full of other people's writings. I have the knowledge that there is, um, that one of my characters, he's, his tissues are turning to stone, and that there's a, an illness that turns your tissues to bone. So I researched that. I actually went and visited the skeleton of uh, one of these victims at the Muru Museum in Philadelphia. Great mm -hmm. times. Wow. I, I, uh, I said hi. I told him <laughs> that I was a big fan of his illness, which is kind of dark, I know. But 
And as I mentioned, the ghoul aspect. <laughs> he inspired the character because huh? I learned about that on uh, on a television documentary or something, and said that's kind of a horrible thing, but also kind of cool and a I can't believe it's real sort of thing. Oh yeah, you know so. there are people in, I forget where they live, but they actually look like the Blue Man Group just naturally. <laughs> Yeah, like that's a weird natural. Yeah, what Whatever a strange illness. Just don't tell Rivertown that. Anyway. Yeah. Um, sorry, Fire, that was a Firefly, Firefly reference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I usually what I do is a lot of my research is online uh, since I'm more modern and futuristic. So I send myself a lot of emails with links, or I'll record it into um, Evernote. I believe is the name of the software system. So I've got it for reference to go back to. And usually what I do is I'll pull multiple headlines and pull them together and do something like David Bowie does with his music. And what he does, I don't know if you know, is a lot of times he'll write the music, then he'll chop it up, put it on the floor, and sit in the middle of it and just re-look at it and start piecing things back together in a different way. And I'll do that with headlines. It's like, okay... I kind of sort of had this idea, but let me see here. Hmm. See, this is yeah, how his plots get so complicated. <laughs> this is true. I am known for complicated plots, and yeah. I need to really uncomplicate them. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you need to skip this step then. <laughs> well, and well, if he doesn't find inspiration through his inspiration process, then he's not going to have any yeah. plots, complicated or simple. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I... Um, if I'm writing hardcore science fiction, especially, I like to extrapolate what the technology is today, how it would reasonably progress. But then, that's the science fiction, by the way, that gets dated awfully fast. It's very entertaining for me to read old science fiction, because if it's old hardcore science fiction, it is always, almost, a reflection of the time with which it was written. The gender, the, the social norms come through loud and clear. Mm-hmm. Um the um, technology is like, okay, yeah, we have this. Mm-hmm. We sure don't have that. Yeah. And no, we can do this better now. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So it's... <laughs> well, sometimes technology advancements outguess the, the, the writer. Like, a, yeah. Yeah. You're gonna, I think you had your hand up. No, I was just going to express my love of the future cities of the past. Yeah. Yes. I do, I do love okay. the future cities of the past. The way that people in the past look to... Probably now, you know, or year slightly. 2000, and they think that we all are dressed in shimmery clothes with giant collars and our hair is slicked straight up in the air, and you wonder, well, and we're still did smoking I? cigarettes. Yeah, we're still smoking cigarettes. smoking cigarettes. Everyone has a floating car. All the architecture is this otherworldly white ivory swoop that heads to the sky. And, and clean. And clean. Everything's clean. Oh, clean. and actually, um, Stranger in a Strange Land. If you just skip the free love part, not skip, it's impossible to skip it, but the point is, that was a reflection of the 70s, but um, yeah, they have grass growing on the inside, and that's such a special thing, because apparently there's, you know, the lack of nature on the outside, and there are it's, people in Mars, and... It's extra fun to see how much they actually got right in a mm-hmm. weird sort yeah. of past way. You know, the... 
the cell phones, obviously, like, they, people in the 80s when we were just starting with those mobile car phone things, and so what they thought that phones would mm-hmm. be like in the future, a lot of time there's still a cord involved, and because mm-hmm. they're having a hard time thinking yeah. ahead mm-hmm. past outside of their box, but they're doing their yeah. best, and it's almost, it's almost cute to see it happen. <laughs> yeah, but they get some stuff right. 2001 had not quite right version of the internet, mm-hmm. and they had a tablet. They also had time delay, communication, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also, too, Frederick Poole, I forget which novel he wrote, had a way in the in the opening of a story, uh, two men, if I'm right, if I remember how that goes, and it doesn't matter, character sex, they're in an airplane, they're flying somewhere, and on the airplane, he's on the computer, reserving the hotel, and pays for the hotel by swiping his credit card along the screen of the machine mm-hmm. to pay for it. And, and which doesn't sound like sci-fi to us, because we probably right. paid for something this morning that way. Of course, exactly. we would probably type it in, the number. Well, or yeah. if you go to a store, they'll yeah, they would the square type it, yeah. or whatever. But this was written in 1983, so mm-hmm. it was futuristic. Not that far ahead, but still futuristic. And now we're getting away again from sort of the immediateness of writing from the headline. Yes. But this is projection from... Actually, it's more projection from today into tomorrow, rather than... I'm still saying that that's kind of a fringe fringe association with this topic. I mean, the writing from the headlines tends to make me think automatically of police procedures and crime... Uh, are there other things that would be a more immediate, not a projection toward technology, but something that, you know, perhaps a medical thing or an awareness group or something that you've seen written of in this way? There is a, there's one thing. I'm going to let Fedora answer your question. While we were talking, something I thought about. There is one form or one media we haven't talked about that is easier or more likely to be um, able to be used for writing from the headlines, and that is the short story. Because mm. because it doesn't take as long to do a short story and get it published as it does a novel. Well, I think there is a an entire segment of writing that has been around forever, which is about reforming things, about reformation. That is, Charles Dickens saw lots of problems in the orphanages, the workhouses, the very different class systems, the great poverty and mm-hmm. and crime in his era, and that's what he wrote about. And so did Upton Sinclair in the 30s and Frank Norris with the octopus. It's, it's, it's a timeless because we still have most of those problems, if uh-huh. not all of them. Too bad. But, so <laughs> it, it makes a long-time commitment to having a kind of book. Uh-huh. And it's about reforming things, making things better. Oh, just a modern version. I'm not going to say anything about the accuracy, but Three Cups of Tea. That was a book written about a charity, a girls' school in Afghanistan, and his supposed his work in it. And apparently there were some claims made in the book that weren't necessarily true. But yeah. that was... A, that actually, there's a whole other class that maybe that should be called self-promotional books. Self-promotional it seems like it's a requirement now before you run for president that you have to publish an autobiography. Which is usually, and by the way, sorry to throw dirt on this, but usually those claimed to be written by the candidate is usually been ghostwritten. 
by yeah. somebody else. Well, it's all part of the campaign. Exactly. But the point that we're, is very that's writing to the head. That's writing to make headlines. Actually, mm-hmm. we're heading <laughs> very quickly toward Douglas Adams' view of outer space. We're going to have Zaphod Beeblebrox on in the White House before we know it. He's just a figurehead. He's yeah. the rock and roll president that is up there just for looks and appeal and to make public appearances while other people do all the hard work in the background. If you could just get other people to, you know, that are competent in the background. Yeah. But going back to Fedora's statement, there's other books as well that have done a lot of reformation work, and still there are still a lot of them out there, and that's one way to incorporate the headlines. Um, Sinclair Lewis with The Jungle, Mm. which led to the changing of the way we... FDA. FDA, the whole entire food processing and so forth. Uh, suggest you have a strong stomach if you're ever going to read that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Kate Chopin with um, some of her books, some of her works. Um, the Awakening, is that what you're trying to think of? The Awakening is one of them, yeah. And then I'm also, I'm trying to recall, what my, I'm trying, actually I'm trying to get the guy's name past my mouth because I really don't like his work, but he definitely falls into this and is known as a reformer with writing, and that is... Matt, thank you. I can't get word out. Grapes of Wrath. Steinbeck. <laughs> John Steinbeck. See, I, 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 some authors I just don't like enough that I can't even say their name easily. But that's okay. That's just me. Do you that? need a plane sickness bag after that? <laughs> no, I'll be okay. By thank the way, you. he's only ever read <clears throat> one of his works. <laughs> that's actually not true. Oh. I've okay. only read one of his works cover to cover. Oh, okay. I picked up others and that didn't make it past chapter two or three. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's irregardless. But, yeah. We can have a but that, session on Steinbeck at another time. Yeah, I, I really don't ever want to do that. <laughs> um, but what I'm trying to say is that is, for the novelist, probably one of the best avenues to be able to write from the headlines is get a cause or mm-hmm. write about something that you see an injustice or something you see that needs to be changed. There's no substitute there. for passion. There no. really isn't. No. And if you don't, and if you don't like this next author, I'm going to mention that's fine. I don't care where people <laughs> politically stand. Anne Rand. A lot of her novels are based not only on her philosophy, but based on her time of when she was growing up and her background, and it be, and our causes, if mm-hmm. you will, reactions to various things that were happening. Yeah, some novels I feel like you need the annotated version to actually appreciate and uh, getting. Yeah. Don't God, James Joyce, yes. Uh, but actually, uh, for instance, um, this isn't political, so it's isn't political at all, uh, but um, the Victorian authors, at least I think it's a Victorian author, like uh, uh, Withering Heights. Uh, earlier, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. earlier. Yeah, but uh, like the Bronte. Classic romance is that. Is what but like the Bronte that? sisters, whatever, they're kind of a reflection of the time they were written in. I'm not sure if that's writing from the headlines or not, but kind of it kind of is like Dickens was, and especially if it's annotated, you can see like what is she saying there. Um, in Jane Austen, there are some characters that speak differently, and apparently, like their word choice is different. Mm-hmm. And if you were a reader of the time, you would get that's a clue that they're less educated, ah. and you know readers today would read right over that. So because well, all of them are strange words to readers today. Yeah. True. But uh, class actually, uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice has a lot about class in it. There is pretty much they're pretty much ignoring the 
lower classes altogether, but, you know. Yeah. So you say she really wasn't all that classy. No, I'm just uh-huh. joking. It was clearly, spe- it, her audience was clearly the middle class. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Which brings you another point. If you're going to write for the headlines, you have to be careful not to to know your audience. You have to pick who you, you want to pick your very, audience very carefully. Yeah. Right. Make sure you don't offend everyone in the same work. <laughs> well, even the headlines can get uh, played out too. Yeah. Uh, I just thought of this a good example is in the world of video games, writing about wars is very popular. Uh, because there's shooting mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there's a clear enemy when you're writing about a current war and for a long time for many years uh doing a middle east style war game like call of duty in is uh was very popular but they've been doing both the war and the game for so long that recent trend has sent us back to world war Two. and there's even a game out now that comes from world war one hmm. because the headline, people are tired of hearing about it, so they're also tired of playing the game, which is kind of sad at the same time that we're tired of hearing about current events because they've dragged on for long enough. But that's a political statement I'm not going to touch. The point is that, that, you know, writing from the headline can be a good way to get a fast audience because everyone has it in their present state of mind. They can understand the background. Yes, but it's also good to keep your thumb on the pulse of what people want to hear about and what people are tired of hearing about. Mm-hmm. I'm personally tired of hearing about cyberbullying. I know it's a problem, but I feel like it as a as a topic being used in films and and short stories. The minute someone comes up and I find out that the story I'm reading is actually about being a subject of cyberbullying, I get that, oh, because I already know what's going to happen. I already know exactly yeah. what the plot points laid out in the story are going to be because I've read the story before. And that's what I call oversaturation of a headline. Mm-hmm. In which it starts to be become something you just really want to avoid. Mm-hmm. Or it's boring. Or it's hackneyed now. So, and on that note, is there, I'm gonna, is there any final thoughts on writing from a headline? Well, I'd just like to ask. Here's another one from today's paper. It's called Superweeds. What <laughs> would you do if you were going to write a story about superweeds? Oh, okay. Well, there's two options. One okay. is realistic and the other is sci-fi. If I was going realistic, I'd actually make it a piece where there was just a, maybe a slight exaggeration of it that... Uh, an actual, you know, farmer or like someone who was trying to be an organic farmer was trying to deal with these weeds that were coming in and, you know, make it about the characters and um, how these problems and the um, the plant guys that are creating these, well, in, accidentally creating this, like Monsanto and such are accidentally creating it and all that. But then the other thing is there's the whole monster movie, Make the Super Weeds the Monster. That's Mine the would attack of the giant Mine would eat people. Mine yeah. would eat a whole town. Eat, people. eat a town. <laughs> yeah. And yours would? Well, actually, I could go a couple of ways. I could go similar to what Melanie was just talking about, focusing more on how maybe the weeds are killing off the crops and thus causing them to go dirt poor and end up writing another version of George Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. However, my other aspect, the first thing, was actually the first part that just hit in, sorry, I'm trying not to laugh, this fedora's laughing at that last statement, um, is the first time she said superweed, first thing I thought was drugs. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And oh. now, <laughs> it, as the United States starts slowly making marijuana legal for recreational use, what here comes a new form of weed that has been genetically modified by somebody to become the super weed. And there you get, and there you end up can end up with a kind of a narcotic thriller, lack of a better way of putting that. Uh-huh. I think that that's a good example of writing from the headlines because you're grasping something that's affecting the nation and affecting the whole world in a way, uh, and you're turning it into something exciting and thinking about the ramifications of it. If you take in the super weed angle and turned it into something instead about... Uh, Oh gosh, I had this three seconds ago. <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah. Um, if you decided to write about it and made it about global warming, mm-hmm. then everyone would groan because that's a that's a, a bad example of writing from the headline. Although it's still a headline because people are still talking about it, the audience is tired of hearing about now, it. Now, frankly, if I was going to write about global warming, I wouldn't write about it. I would include it, as in the effects of global warming, as in stronger storms, whatever, would be... It would be, back, it would be background to the yeah, story. Well, perhaps I might be cynical, but even that would make me groan. Like, I'm watching Pacific Rim, and they say global warming made it possible no, no, for no, aliens no. to show up, and I'm like... Pfft. No, no, you see, it would never be <laughs> mentioned in the story. The ice caps would be melting and release the killer virus, but you never mentioned that it's global warming causing the ice caps to melt. That's very... That's the better way to go. Yeah. You would keep me from making fart noises okay. if you did it that way. <laughs> so if you're writing about global warming and it's in the book and she reads, she'll make a fart noise. And anyway. roll my eyes back into my head. Yeah. Yes. And on that note, we want to thank everybody for listening and catch us next week. We're going to talk about critiques and critique groups. So a little more... Not Maybe... Well, actually, no. I hope there will be some humor because, believe me, some critiques... <laughs> And critique groups I've seen have been sources of great humor. (laughs) And on that note, catch us next week. Thank you. The Right Pack would like to thank STL Books for allowing us to record in their bookstore. STL Books and Gifts is St. Louis' newest independent bookstore with an emphasis on fine literature for adults and children and the most comprehensive selection of St. Louis books available anywhere. Visit them online at stlbooks.com or in person at 100 West Jefferson Avenue, Kirkwood, Missouri, 63122. Tune in next week as the Right Pack will conquer yet another pondering issue in the writing industry. Theme songs for Right Pack Radio were written and performed by Meredith Tate. All copyrights remain with her.